following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 3, 1 through 6. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. When we were setting our face uh, to move here over six years ago, uh, we began looking at homes. We lived 1,300 miles away in the state of Montana, So most of our search was on the internet. Um, There was one house in Rock Island. It was so cool. It was old. Um, It was one of those that uh, has all the wonderful woodwork. It has wonderful wood floors. And, you know, you can just, uh, the the small rooms with the really fancy tile around several fireplaces. Um, it, It was on a street that was paved with bricks. And all I could think of, you know, is in my imagination, wow, wouldn't that be a cool place? I was thinking, wouldn't that be a cool place to be? I could imagine some uh, professor sitting in the parlor smoking a pipe. Um, I don't even know what a parlor is, but it sounded like that would be the right place for him to be if he was smoking his pipe. I was thinking, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a great place? Uh, I was thinking, wouldn't that be a great place to, to live? Now, I said I was thinking because there's no way I would have said that out loud. Uh, my wife would have freaked out. It had no air conditioning, and um, did I say it was old? (laughs) Um, Old wiring, old plumbing, probably old heating system, Uh, everything I could for the life of me never know how to. I can't even, we live in a house that's about 20 years old, and that's a challenge enough in terms of old, right? Um, But it's a house that that really... uh, kind of gets a, at a dream of mine, and that is restoration. There's, there's something wonderful about thinking about something that is uh, old and tired and broken, and to see that being restored back to its former glory. Um, well, I think that is God's story. 
That is God's story uh, for this world. It's God's story for your world. Uh, We are in that redemptive period of time within God's story, but in that redemptive period of time, he is doing something, and that is not only is he redeeming people, but now he's beginning the work of restoration within hearts and lives. That's your story. That's our story. That's the story of our families. That's the story of our community. That's the story of our cities. And so we are in this, these two books, one book in uh, the Hebrew Bible, these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, although written 2,500 years ago, have principles of taking a people in whom God has redeemed, and now he wants to do that restoration work again in the land, in the promised land. And, and what we find there in a story that's 2,500 years old, they have timeless principles. Timeless principles that we can apply uh, to our lives to give us hope and help in God's restoration work that he is doing in our hearts, in our families, in our communities, in our cities. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, Ezra chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. And we're going to find there that, that worship has a surprising place within God's restoration process. Restoration of our hearts and our families, our communities, cities, must begin with worship. This morning I want to show you three results that come as a result of worship, uh, three results that can help us uh, within this restoration that God is doing within our lives. But uh, before we get there, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the value of this moment. Time to step into it a bit and learn principles that were true then and are still true today and will be true another 2,500 years from now. We thank you, Father, that as we have already done Uh, You are calling us to do, and we will be doing, on into eternity, and that is worshiping you. And that is really, really good for our souls. So thank you for already preaching to us. And so we pray, Father, that as we come to your word, would you continue to speak to our hearts and our souls and uh, continue that really good restorative work that you want to do. Redeem who needs to be redeemed here. Restore who needs to be restored. Please have your way as we come to your word. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Well, there are three results uh, that I want to turn your attention to uh, that highlights why worship must be the priority for God's restoration work. The first result of worship uh, is this. Worship unifies. Worship unifies. Now, now we know from chapter 2 that nearly 50,000 people have come, uh, have returned from the exile, and they have arrived, and now they are settling down. They've settled down into towns. And so on the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, Tishri, that would be September, October for our calendar, you see there the people, look verse 1, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, in our day where life is so fractured, 
down many lines. It's difficult to imagine this kind of unity, but boy, isn't it compelling. Can you imagine coming as, as he's describing there, as one man, as one people coming forward on, on this day? And so this is what they're doing. This kind of unity is only possible uh, when God is working. And so we see that when he is stirring within hearts and lives. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, just a few pages over, chapter 1, verse 5, this is what we read. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And so these people, they are stirred and they are being unified around some common truths, some common truths, several truths like logs on a fire to fuel Worship that results in unity. So here's the first truth. They, they shared a common understanding of the character of God. And as a result of knowing the character of God, then they began to understand where they fit within that uh, character. So if you turn now an, another page over to chapter 5, uh, you'll see uh, these words in verse 11, where the opposition is reporting to the king uh, what the people are saying about God and what they're saying about themselves. So this is the opposition actually writing a letter to the king, and this is what they understand about the character of God and the relationship to him, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, very simple. And this was their reply to us, these op- those who are, uh, who are writing. They said, God's people said, the exile said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. The common truth that they had about this God that they were serving is that he is sovereign and that he is not like the gods that they understood, the regional gods, not like the God that uh, Cyrus, this this king of the superpower he understood and whom he was appealing to all the regional gods and so he saw Yahweh as one as just a regional God there in Jerusalem. No, uh, no, this God is the God of heaven and earth. He's not just the God of part of a life or part of a region. No, he is a God who who is a God of all things, of all, all parts of our lives. And so this is, this is who they are unifying around. He is the sovereign one. See, it's the same God, chapter 1, verse 1. It's the same God who, as he had stirred his own people, look what he had done there, remember? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord, or Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. (laughs) Cyrus, he's the servant. Yeah, they understood they were servants, but maybe what he didn't understand is, oh, no, you're my servant as well, because he is the sovereign so they understood this, and so they gathered as one people, understanding whom they were serving. Uh, they are, he's the one who is sovereign over uh, all, all things. But you know, they, they had a set, another common understanding of who God is, and it's down there in our, in our chapter now, down there in verse 11. Uh, we'll look at it next week. Uh, they're singing a song, verse 11, chapter 3, and they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. He's sovereign. 
and he's good. There's something within us broken to such a degree that we don't think he is good. And so over and over again, we, we have the testimony all the way through Scripture that he is good. And so they're gathering around recognizing, yes, he's sovereign. And part of that fear there in his sovereignty is that we know the people who have absolute power, what do they do? They absolutely are corrupt. And so they have to be told, he's good. No, he's actually good. <laughs> he's going to do good things. They had a common understanding of the character of God which fueled their worship, resulting in unity. But they also shared a common understanding of their covenantal relationship to this God. Covenantal relationship to this God. See, that second word there in that song that they were praising and giving thanks to God was is about his steadfast love. For he is good. Now, how do we know that? Well, here's how we know it. Look at there. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. It's a truth that, that they understood that when they heard this word chesed, that's the Hebrew word chesed means steadfast love. It was a word that was, was centered around a covenant, a covenant relationship in which God, in his steadfast love for his people, he, he, showed, he, he showed a love for them, brought them into relationship through a, a covenant. So the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was then refined through David, was not founded upon somehow the people's love for God, but rather God's love for the people. <laughs> so that we have, we have the story of Jeremiah, I'm sorry, of Abraham, who is, who, who is not seeking God at all, has idols of his own, and God calls him out of his idol worship and enters into a covenant relationship with him. And then he does a remarkable thing. He says, not only am I entering a relationship with you, but through you and through your descendants, I will bless the entire world. <laughs> And I'll make a covenant with you, a unilateral covenant. That is, I will, I will tell you everything that I will do for you. It is unconditional. Just trust in me. And so Abraham, when he entered into the promised land as an, his own exile, in his, as, a, as a stranger, the first thing that he did, he built an altar to this God as if saying, Amen. To that promise. And so it is the same covenant that sustained God's people as they are in exile for 70 years. Now what's really interesting when we think about this as we try to enter into what they were experiencing there is that they've gone into exile um, because they have rejected God. Uh, because uh, they have decided that they, they know their own way, that they're kind of becoming laws unto themselves. They, they know what they think, uh, how God should act. And so they've rejected the true and living God, the God of heaven and earth, and they've ran after their own gods. And over and over again, God is disciplining them. He's bringing prophets into their lives, and they're not repenting. Uh, they, they're turning away from him. And so ultimately, the, the discipline is, is that God places them into exile. Babylon comes, wipes them out. Now, now, you would think, or at least I would think, uh, that, okay, now they're in exile. The God would say, now you just stay there, and you just, you know, you change your ways, and when you change your ways, then I'll come and get you. But that's not what he does. He doesn't wait for them to get their act together. 
No, interestingly enough, early in that exile, the prophet Jeremiah gives him even a more hopeful refinement of this covenant. God gives a more hopeful refinement of the covenant that they already have been part of. Uh, and I want you to see it. So if you have your Bibles there, turn to Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter uh, 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, please, in your Bibles. And then when you get to chapter 33, go to chapter 31. Because <laughs> that's where we really need to be. Chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. So again, remember, this is in the context of they're already in exile. It's early on in their exile, and they are feeling the shame of what it means to turn away from God. And so, you know, in my mind, in our sinful mind, we would think that, well, God has completely rejected them, abandoned them, and he's waiting for them to get their act together. But no, he doesn't do that. But rather, in this time, while they're in exile, look at chapter 31, look at verse 31. 31, 31. Behold, the, the, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's a refinement of this first covenant that he had made with Abraham then refined to David, and now this new covenant that they can look forward to. That God's going to do a remarkable work in such a way that not only will they have this outside law that is to kind of guide and govern their enjoyment of the covenant. See, the, the, the Ten Commandments, or you know, we would call that the, the Sinaitic Covenant, it was one in which uh, they were called into, in, if you want to enjoy this relationship, you need to be obey. But they found that they couldn't do that. So God says, I have, in your exile, in your, in your time of discipline, I have something good news for you. And the good news is there's a new covenant that's coming, and it's a covenant in which I will actually enter into your, he's hinting, enter into your life, into your heart. And it's so guaranteed, look what he continues to say there. He says, it's guaranteed this way. Thus says the Lord, verse 35, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. This is the God he, they're serving. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can, above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. <laughs> What's he saying? Absolutely, you are my people. In your sin, there is forgiveness. Wow. That's not like the regional gods. Matter of fact, that's not like the gods that you and I serve today. That's not like the idols. They always demand. 
and they will abandon us. God says, I'll never abandon you. And so they're unified around not only this understanding who God is, but they're unified around, they're unified around this covenant. And so the common understanding of being the covenant people of God, uh, whom he has stirred their heart to return to the promised land, they began to take on a new name, interestingly enough. Um, it's, it's found in chapter 10, verse 8, just a very short one. It, it, they began to call themselves the congregation of the exiles. The congregation of the exiles. What were they doing? Well, they were identifying themselves as exiles. Even though they were, they were coming back, they've come back to the promised land, they are identifying themselves as exiles who are set apart from the world around them. And so we gather as Christians today in the same, with the same title. Unified around this new covenant. And because we're unified around this new covenant, uh, like their story, we, it's our story. Peter, he begins his first letter this way. Listen to these words, First, uh, first Peter chapter 1. He, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, elect exiles by a new covenant. That's us. Well, they had a third common truth, and it's this. They understood the authority of God's word. They understood the authority of God's word and thus the necessity to be in submission to that word, namely the law. And so it is the law that's going to guide their very first action in Jerusalem as a unified people. Because worship unifies. And it begins with personal worship. Um, James, in, in the first chapter of his of his letter, he describes the uncertain man, the one who is not certain where his allegiance lies, not certain what he truly loves. Do I really love God or do I love these other things? And so he describes them as, those, as, as, as a person who is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And then James goes on and writes about temptation and how we are enticed by our own desires so that if we are uncertain about who or what we really love, we will ultimately be taken down by the love of lesser things, taken down by sin. But in the opposite, personal worship of the living God does something. It begins to unify our hearts. It begins to unify our heart around a love of Him so that when we are tempted by lesser loves, we are able to resist so that James writes in that same chapter, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
And so personal worship is absolutely necessary for you and I as, as we're moving out into this world as exiles who God is calling us to be restored and to be restoring our families and to be restoring our communities. It begins with our own personal worship of taking time every single day and to be reflecting again back on who he is and what he has done for us. And as we do this, our love for him grows so that a, a disunified mind all of a sudden becomes one which is unified, a heart that is turned tossed about by things around the world becomes, becomes unified, and we are the ones who love him. And so when we are tempted, oh, there's a greater love than that thing that's trying to pull my affections away. <laughs> Restoration. Worship unifies our heart. It also worships, uh, unify, uh, sorry, worship uh, unifies our church. Corporate worship must be a priority. As we worship together, we become unified around a common understanding, a common understanding around the character of God, a common understanding around the covenant that unites us, a common understanding around a submission to God's word, restoration in our hearts, our families, our communities must begin with worship. Well, let's look at the second result of worship. Worship atones. Worship atones. I mentioned earlier that in submission to the word of God, the very first thing that we find them do is they build an altar. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then uh, arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of, the Moses, uh, law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now it's interesting here, we have both the, the priestly and the kingly descendants who are working hand in hand. Jeshua is the high priest, first introduced to us in chapter 2. Zerubbabel is the grandson of King Jehoiachin, who's the last king before the exile, and so he is a king who's in this line of David. Priest and king working hand in hand. But did you notice there in verse 2 how he then they describe this word? Where does this word come from? Well, it says there in verse 2, it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now Moses was considered a prophet. So we have the king and priest and prophet, if you will, working hand to hand to build this altar, and you can't miss it, right? It's a foreshadowing to the priest, king, prophet, who's going to be found in one man, the man, Jesus Christ. You happened to confess it earlier. Nicely done. <laughs> so what do they do? They, they built an altar. The altar was immense, at least 48 square feet and seven feet, I mean, sorry, 15 feet high. That's two of me and a little more. They, they build it, and it's, it's made of unhewn stones. You couldn't miss it. It's on the rubble of the, of the temple mounts. So verse 3 says, they set the altar in its place because they knew their calling. They knew the importance of this altar being conspicuous. It, they couldn't miss it. 
the exiles. But the people of the land who were already there couldn't miss it either. Those who were in opposition to them. See, they knew their calling. They knew their calling uh, that they were kingdom, a kingdom of priests and, and the holy nation. Thus, the first thing to build is an altar that is central to the worship of God. So just like Abraham, as I mentioned earlier, when he came into the promised land and said, amen to the promise. So now they have come back to the promised land and saying, amen to the promise. This is who we are. God has called us to be his priests, to bring the good news that there is only one God, and he has a way, and it's his way in which we come to him, and it's through a sacrifice. It's through a sacrifice of an animal who, in substitute for us, because of our sins, we are people who then can come and be right before him through the shed blood of the sacrifice. Conspicuous out there for all the people to see. So the building of that altar was an act of faith, but you know what? It was also an act of fear. Did you see that? It was an act of fear. Um, it says, therefore, fear was on them because of the uh, peoples of the lands. And so this is the first introduction that we have of how people are going to be relating to these, exiled, uh, these exiles. And it, we discovered that there's a hostile environment here. The land was occupied by people who were not sympathetic. And we're going to find, as we continue on in Ezra and on through Nehemiah, many details to this hostility. But let me just tell you this. This seed that we have of hostility here, 400 years later, it's going to have fruit, and it's going to have fruit in the name of the Samaritans. The land was filled with people who were imported from other nations. Uh, they were people who, some were still God's people, the, the poor of the poor that had been left behind in, in the exile. Uh, th these were people who had lost all connection to the word of God. And so they have their own gods. They have their own standards of morality. They have their own ideas of how to fix all the wrong that is around them. But isn't it interesting what, what God's people do? This is what they do. They build an altar like a big billboard to the inhabitants saying, there is one true God. He is holy. We are daily offending him. There's only one way to appease his wrath against sin. A substitute must give its life. Blood needs to be shed and applied. And building this billboard, it was an act that created real fear of man. Because that's what good news does to people. Who are broken. It says you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And you can't come to Him in any old way, but only in the way that He has devised. And so <laughs> it's conspicuous. It would be tempting as exiles, it would be tempting to tell the people what they wanted to hear. It would be tempting to become buddies and friends and kind of, did we have to build such a big altar? Couldn't we have done it kind of on the sly? No, they needed to be reminded, uh, the people needed to be reminded uh, that, uh, that there is this great God. And the exiles knew that one thing is one thing to have enmity with fallible, finite men and women, it's a completely different thing to be at enmity with the infinite and infallible God of heaven and earth. And so they needed, as exiles, they needed that altar for it was an, an act of a fear of 
God. I was reading, just so happened this morning. Um, so this book is called Prone to Wander. It's, a, it's not a book to read. It's a book to use in terms of your daily worship. And so uh, it has prayers of confession and then a celebration, if you will, in that it gives us very similar to what we do here on Sunday mornings in our gatherings, and that is confession and absolution. It's, my, uh, it's, it's been very helpful for my own personal worship. It's written by Barbara Duguid and Wayne Duguid, Hook, uh, Hauk, I'm sorry, Barbara Duguid, not like D-O-G-O-O-D, but Barbara Duguid, D-U-G-U-I-D, and Wayne Duguid, D-U-G-U-I-D, H-O-U-K. So, <laughs> prone to wander. Isn't that a great title? Isn't that the title of our lives? So it just so happened, you know how that works, it just so happened today I was reading about, it, it's, it's got titles of things that you should be thinking about, or, and so today's forgetting God. See, the reason why the altar was important for them and the reason why, as we're now beginning to think, what does that altar represent? But that altar is pointing towards the, the cross. The reason why this is important is, is as I was praying this morning, confessing this morning, this is what I was confessing. Because we often forget this truth, we fear and worship. Let me, let me go back one. What truth? You are the one who judges all men in righteousness and truth. Because we often forget this truth, we fear and worship people instead of you and give them the power to cast us into despair by their judgments of us. Instead of trusting and rejoicing in your verdict of not guilty, thinking about the altar or ultimately the cross, We are undone by their displeasure and devastated by their criticism. Sometimes they revile us for actions and we are crushed, even though we have not broken your law, but only the laws of men. And in our deistic therapeutic day, tolerance is the law of man. And to say that there is only one God and there's only one way to God is breaking that law. Or to say, you've hurt me because I told you truth. That's a law we're not supposed to break. We're not supposed to hurt people. Even if we hurt them with truth, we've broken the law of man. And so they can revile us or they can be those who, who judge us and we become undone by that displeasure and we're devastated by that criticism because we've forgotten something. We've forgotten this conspicuous altar. And so they knew that as they were going into this place as exiles, they were going to be telling a wonderful news, a good news, that God is a God who has a way for them to be forgiven that they had to recognize that uh, he was a God of all of heaven and earth, and so he wasn't demanding just a small part of their lives. He was demanding all of their lives. And that they were sinners. And blood needed to be shed. A life needed to be given. And that didn't sit well, like it doesn't sit well today. 
And so what worship does for us is worship causes us to be reminded again that there is this great sacrifice that was made on our behalf. There was one who did come. It was the priest, the prophet, and the king, and he came as a lamb. And he went to the cross. And he shed his blood. It was a bloody altar. And it was a bloody cross. In order to turn God's wrath away from a people who deserved it and to take it himself. And so worship reminds us of this wonderful atonement. And worship is what those people in our, our world that needs to be reconciled, they need to, they need to see the glory of the cross. And so we need to be people who make the cross conspicuous in our lives. And guess what? It begins with personal worship and corporate worship in order to bring reconciliation to our cities. And so um, worship is that which is that which will bring atonement. You know, as here's how it played out in Jesus' life. <laughs> it's interesting. See, uh, Jesus, he purposefully interacted with a descendant of those who were hostile in Ezra's day. And so we're thinking about 250, 300 days, uh, years later. The Samaritan woman at the well. She, she's a descendant of all those who are hostile to God's people there in Ezra's day. Samaritan woman at the well. As Jesus digs down into her sad, broken story, this is what he says, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, it's amazing with me, uh, to me that this woman who was so broken, she ultimately knew that the key uh, of that brokenness had something to do with what she worshipped. Everything was failing her. And she knew that maybe if I worshipped God rightly, she's starting to get it. So she, she asked this question, and Jesus says to her, well, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here. I'm sitting right here, right in front of you. Maybe he's sitting, you know, talking to her. I'm sitting here. It's here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him and so the woman said to him, I know the Messiah, that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. <laughs> and when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's speaking right to him. <laughs> it's great. Three feet away, whatever, four feet away. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> he didn't shy away. That's what we need to do. Let me tell you about a Savior. The restoration of our hearts, our families, our communities must begin with worship. Worship atones. Finally, third result. Third result of worship. 
worship assures, worship assures. Look at uh, verses four through six. And, and they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and, and the other daily offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, and the offerings at the new moon, and, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, in Exodus 29, God assures uh, his people that if they daily atone for their sins on the altar, they will experience his presence. Uh, God says, I'll just read it for you, Exodus uh, 39, he says, I will meet with you. I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be, they sh- it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and, and will be their God, and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. So it is most appropriate on the 14th day after they've established these, these morning and night sacrifices that is really, is really an assurance of God's presence. This is what he does. On the 15th day of the month, they celebrate the Feast of Booths, and we see that at beginning verse 4. Now, the Feast of Booths is one of those three significant feasts that all of Israel was to be celebrating on the Jewish calendar, and it was a joyous seven days. Uh, The celebration uh, began and really fell at a time of the year when people's hearts were already uh, happy. It it happened to come at the time of the heels of harvest, but this is not why they were to celebrate this. It wasn't just a celebration of God's provision for the harvest, but rather a reminder of God's provision and protection during during their exodus from Egypt, at least their descendants, um, those who went before them. But not only there were two feasts, I mean, this has been, this has been great. At the, inception, uh, uh, the, uh, at the inception of this festival was a great feast at the beginning. Um, days and booths, I'll talk about them in a minute, and at the end, uh, more, another feast. But in the between, they were to build temporary shelters outside, Camping. Think camping. They were to reenact their forefathers' experience, to feel the vulnerability and the exposure of wandering in the wilderness, and to annually remind them their dependence upon God who protected and provided for them. So the altar reminded them of his, his presence, but now this Feast of Booths, as they were worshiping, it worshiping does what it does for us, and it reminds us of the assurance of God's protection and provision. So for the exiles on day one, seven months, look back again at the end of the second half of verse four, they, were, they offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. So that's a daily thing going on twice a day. And then other sacrifices that may not have been as frequent as daily, such as the Sabbath offering. So that would be every seven days. Now look at verse five in your Bibles there. The, he says the regular burnt offerings. These are regular offerings that are not so frequent as seven days. And then the offerings of the new moon, uh, that's uh, what, 30 days, 30 days, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, which were less frequent than within the monthly offerings, three times a year. Then finally, he highlights those offerings that were unscheduled and voluntarily, involuntary when he writes, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. The point here is that the exiles are reestablishing their presence in a pagan land 
And they are a people with good news of God's forgiveness. And so in so doing, they recognized the priority goes towards conspicuous worship. And so for us, personal worship and corporate worship are at the center of reestablishing the kingdom of God in our world. Restoration of our soul begins with personal worship. Restoration of our family begins with worship. Restoration of our community begins with worship. Daily. Take time. Get some tools. It'll help. Weekly, gather. It will unify your heart. It'll unify our churches. It'll it'll be a place where we are again reminded that our sins are atoned for. Worship will bring assurances of God's presence, protection of provision as we live as exiles in this world. Worship. Father, um, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to worship. Our prayer, Father, is is that as you are doing a restoring work within our own lives, make us people who worship you every single day. Father, help our worship to be conspicuous to our children. That our children would know that what we really love and value is you. Change our hearts. Restore our hearts that will restore then our families. Father, we pray that as you are restoring our families that you would restore Uh, our churches, that you would be doing a work as we gather together, whether it be here on Sundays or in our MCs. Uh, Father, we pray that you would cause us to be people who worship there, reminding us again and again of our greater love, you, because of your great love for us. And Father, we pray that as we're out on a mission, may we be like Jesus, and may we make our worship of you conspicuous. People, Father, are looking for something that will unify them. Looking for something in their disjointedness. They're looking for something to deal with the shame that is theirs. And Father, some are trying all kinds of different things, pleasures and and hobbies and more money, success. Or they're just deciding that, ah, it's not wrong. I'm not sinning. And yet there's that shame, that lingering shame. Lord, they're looking for someone who will take that for them. Father, people are looking for your presence and your protection and your provision in their hearts. And so we would pray, Father, that we be people who are conspicuous in our love of you, of our worship of you. So Father, as in the 
day of the exile, they walked away from you, but you didn't walk away from them. And Father, we confess that, as we, we confessed earlier, we have walked away from you, but you didn't walk away from us. And so we thank you again for this renewal meal that reminds us again that you are a covenant-making God and that we are under that new covenant. And that new covenant is, is that you promise to give us your spirits within our hearts and that your, your spirit lives within us because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for us. So as we take this bread and as we take this cup, we renew our covenant with you and thank you for it. Thank you, Father, for worship. Thank you for the cross. I pray these things in his name.